0: Hello and welcome to the Sea Control Podcast. I'm Nathan Miller. Today, Andre Howard talks with Lieutenant Kyle Craig about his recent SimSec article, Every Ship a SAG. They discuss his vision of incorporating large unmanned surface vehicles into the fleet. SimSec is looking for a volunteer to join our technical team and support our web operations. We're looking for someone with a background in WordPress implementation and support, as well as knowledge in web hosting and networking. Some knowledge of identity management and security operations is also helpful please reach out to content at simsec.org to share your background and discuss. I'd like to pause here to highlight our local chapters. Whether you are in South Korea, Egypt, Singapore, France, New York, India, or the Caribbean, chances are there's a SimSec local chapter near you. You can find a full listing of local chapters and contact information on our website at simsec.org. So if you are interested, please reach out. Finally, I want to take the opportunity to recommend our partners in the SimSec podcast network, The Bilge Pumps. You can find Alex, Jamie, Drack, and a pile of Iron Brew Bottles wherever you download your podcasts. And with that, Kimber's Men. You're listening to Sea Control, hosted by the Center for International Maritime Security.
1: Greetings, Sea Warriors. Let's dive, dive back into Sea Control. I'm Andrea Howard, and having been on a break from hosting due to the start of my department head tour, I left at the opportunity to interview my dear friend and classmate from the Naval Academy, Lieutenant Kyle Craig. Today, we're discussing his article titled, Every Ship a SAG and the LUSB Imperative, which SimSec published online on March 2nd, 2023. Kyle is a surface warfare officer completing his department head training at SWAS in Newport, Rhode Island, before reporting to USS Pinckney. DDG-91 as the Operations Officer. Kyle, it's so great to have you on and to see you and hear from you again.
2: Absolutely, great to be connected again since we're working on NAFAC, like 2014.
1: Oh, the time does fly. So yeah, let's focus on the good work you're doing now and start by talking about the motivation behind this article. What is the projected outlook on the strike capability of the surface Navy over the next decade?
2: So I opened the piece talking about uh, Congressional Budget Office reporting and testimony that talks about uh, the surface fleet losing 788 vertical launch system cells uh, through the end of 2027. And that of the various plans that we've proposed, we're not going to really restore any of those VLS numbers in the late 2030s. There's been similar work on SimSec by Matt Hippel, who's also highlighted that you know, of the shipbuilding plans we've produced over the past couple decades, we have not even met the numbers projected there. So it's similarly concerning to me to think that we'll be able to have the both strike and anti-surface warfare capacity uh, to be able to meet the challenge of the People's Liberation Army Navy, who is, has the world's largest navy right now, and the industrial capacity to both uh, meet and exceed that capacity.
1: In light of that picture that you've painted, you offer the following as the main question for your article. What capabilities are most likely to enable a replaceable lethal force to deter or deny Chinese aggression from the Taiwan Strait to the second island chain? So what is it that you
2: propose? So ultimately, the, the concept that I'm thinking about is, you know, every ship a SAG, where in a sense, a SAG is a surface action group, of like, temporary organization of ships, usually not involving a carrier, and ultimately they're assigned to a particular task. Uh, in the past decade, we've had hunter-killer SAGs, so-called, with multiple destroyers, uh, but in this case, I'm trying to think about, hey, what are the different ships that I could put a large unmanned surface vehicle around uh, to provide additional VLS capacity uh, to be able to you know, meet the need if required to Uh, deny a Chinese invasion of Taiwan or other, uh, aggression thereof. And, you know, I'll caveat as well that, you know, writing as a surface warfare officer, this is really tailored to my community vice, you know, I've seen similar arguments by David Allman talking about the use of air power and bombers. Um, I'm sure you could, you could write your every boat, a wolf pack sort of piece. Um, but ultimately, That there are are different value choices that we can make between capabilities, but I was writing specifically to the community, and now I think that rather than extending cruisers or arming merchants, uh, that pursuing an LUSV plan around any given ship is the best option that we have to increase strike capacity uh, for our fleet.
1: I like the sound of every submarine a wolf pack, and maybe I'll have to steal that for a future article. Uh, But with that, can you describe the capabilities of an LUSV? What is an LUSV and how is the Navy planning to procure this platform?
2: So an LUSV has been envisioned by Congressional Research Service reporting and also, you know, discussed open source as a Corvette-sized vessel. So 200 to 300 feet, low cost, high endurance, reconfigurable, and designed to fit up to 32 VLS cells. Uh, initial buys will be in FY25 and out to FY27 uh, with $241 million per ship. But ultimately, that really means we're looking at about six ships through the end of the Davidson window. And uh, there's been a lot of arguments about what these things can do. But I was trying to narrowly scope uh beyond just saying adjunct magazine, which I think is technically correct, but uh, may struggle to... Easily explain that narrative of what an adjunct magazine is to, you know, the junior sailor, to the commanding officer, to our congresspeople, uh, both in understanding the need and the use case for them.
1: I think one of the major benefits that you highlight as well is the cost component of an LUSB versus an SSN X or a X and particularly in light of the strains that we already have on our de- defense industrial base and our domestic shipyards. Can you talk about that a little bit more?
2: Okay. So I mentioned, you know, we're looking now when in FY27, it's $241 million per ship. That's uh, distinctly different than we're talking about in the billions for even our labor destroyers or Virginia-class submarines. Yes, we're talking about different capabilities, but ultimately if I wanted to take uh, and replace the nearly 800 VLS cells that we're going to lose through 2027 I could buy a shipbuilding numbers only replace that for under the cost of the potentially proposed SSNX uh, at around six billion or you know at around just over two DDGXs at over three billion um, now I'll caveat that those are just the shipbuilding costs everyone can make arguments about this the C5I connectivity, uh, further research to be done on data and AI, the HM&E support, the manpower infrastructure, the munitions required. I'm not uh, disagreeing on that, but I think what we all can agree on, and I think you know the CNO mentioned in a recent 60 Minutes piece that we don't have enough shipyards. Uh, the shipyards we have are building the big multi-mission and multi-billion dollar combatants now. If I want to be able to find the capacity in the industrial base, it's going to be in building smaller combatants like the LUSV, whether that's in American shipyards or with our AUKUS Japanese or Korean partners, um, because you can look open source. We're going to be sharing SM6 with our Korean partners, Australians and Japanese, uh, over the next few years. And as well, the Tomahawk land attack missile with the Australians and Japanese in the coming years as well. So those are, those are the two missiles, uh, distinctly designed for the LUSV and its striking surface warfare role. So, you know, when Japan and Korea have the second and third largest building capacity in the world, I think why not when we so desperately need uh, additional ship capacity for our fleet as well.
1: So let's say that the US Navy is able to procure LUSVs at the scale that you propose in this article. Let's talk about who should be working with this platform and then how the employment of them will look in practice. So first, like I said, who do you envision as the leaders for these teams of LUSVs, and how do they fit into the existing chain of command? So
2: I'll do that in two ways, one in the short or interim term, and then more in the longer term. Um, And I've gotten some good feedback um, from those in the personnel realm trying to make arguments towards it. Uh, In the interim, the surface fleet is already committing to early command opportunities for junior officers, both coming off their division officer tours and into their department head tours, where they can go either with Task Force 59 out in Bahrain um, or with Fort Wainimi, uh, to work with LUSV and MUSV uh, in that role. And, or correction, with USB Div 1, I should say. Um, that's a good uh option in the short term, but ultimately I think there's, value in being able to buy back other short time for people similar to the way that the SWO nuclear community has conventional and then nuclear division officer, department head, and then you know, mid-grade tours. Um so something like a SWO hybrid pathway where you have folks that are talented in robotics, engineering, computer science, that can be a subset of a community where I can do a conventional SWO tour and then I'm going to go explicitly work with unmanned, and then I can still get my shore duty to do all the things that we recognize are not going to go away, whether that's getting masters and joint tours and all these other things. But within the community, there is a desire and a higher level of expertise for individuals who can uh, lead and execute with unmanned systems.
1: Sounds like an awesome career opportunity to diversify the profile and get involved with these unmanned or human-in-the-loop technologies that are going to expand the reach of our existing platforms from the seabed up into space. And you argue that LUSVs are going to ultimately increase the survivability of the fleet by complicating an adversary's ability to target and attack surface forces. So let's get to the meat of your article. What does the employment of these platforms look like in practice?
2: Yeah. Realistically, it just goes down to many of the tenants that Wayne Hughes and his adherents have followed and are built in into the distributed maritime operations concepts, where if I'm able to put more things to see, separate them, then I'm complicating the adversary's targeting problem, whether I'm within their weapons engagement zone or without, and they have to determine what is the greatest risk. And even as they work through that entire kill chain, uh, doing a battle damage assessment to say, what did we actually uh, successfully engage, what's left, and how do we do that? The more I can put out on the ocean, the more complicated that is for the adversary. And, I mean, realistically, I think about for myself, if every single Li Yang-3 or Renhai came with an unmanned 32-cell VLS, that would be something that would greatly worry me. Um, and so I would like to impose that same fear and consideration with them uh, should the time come uh, because they're doing it with manned platforms right now and we don't have the capacity to do that.
1: Yeah, it's hard to to fathom trying to go up against Renhais and Lu Yangs with additional unmanned systems augmenting their already top-notch capabilities. One of the the scenarios that piqued my interest in your article is your identification of times that would warrant embarking on a USV. You know, a lot of folks will think that unmanned systems are going to just remain totally unmanned. So what situations would warrant that posturing? And how do you envision that transition between manned and unmanned operations?
2: Well, it's, it's definitely a lot of open source reporting. I think when the, the Department of Defense transitioned these unmanned systems to the Navy, that we had, uh, I think, the Sea Hunter be able to cross the Pacific, Pacific about 94% of the time unmanned, things like that. Um, but I do think there are times where whether you're entering or leaving port or going through critical straits, um, where the ability to respond to casualties, uh, both either on board or to the, you know, boater getting out on a Friday in San Diego, uh, having someone on board who can take responsibility for and pilot the vessel accordingly is is prudent. And that's in a peacetime and a sort of regular operations environment. Similarly, I could also see arguments for, depending on the C-5 ISRT architecture we have set up and continue to develop with the uh, Navy operational grid and uh, project overmatch and things like that. You know, if I'm in a degraded environment, is there a value of potentially a small crew embarking on an LUSB that it will proceed over the horizon for its own strike mission vice the entire destroyer or LCS or ESB that it is working with? That's potentially an option that's worth considering. And so, you know, there it's more like maybe the the PT boats and John F. Kennedy of Yore that it's not great to live on, but you can get the job done if you need to.
1: That's a great conceptualization. And for people that may still not fully be able to grasp this, you give a metaphor of sorts in saying that there is a parallel between the Romeo community and its deployment of expeditionary detachments of pilots. How does this model differ for LUSBs, but what are the similarities as well?
2: Sure. So this is not meant to an insult to our Seahawk community brethren, but ultimately, as a SWO, when I'm bringing on a helo, I'm bringing on a semi-autonomous weapons and sensor platform that can go out and do jobs on its own, uh, or it's going to be under the control of a particular operator on board the ship. And, you know, when we go to our crude platforms with Romeos and Sierras and things like that, Um, they are bringing on board a detachment of operators, uh, maintainers, and able those able to operate the system that is required. Um, The only difference that I would offer is, you know, the Romeo or those aircraft are dependent specifically on the vessels, which can embark them, land them, fuel them, uh, communicate with them accordingly. Uh, I definitely think those cases, uh, without knowing the details as I drew from open source, that, you know, an LUSV can interoperate, whether it's I'm going to be with the carrier one day, and as we break off a sag to go operate with this destroyer, I can easily be chopped over, just like I would any other destroyer, into a surface action group. And that can be more seamless, at least it is with the C2. Uh, but everyone can make the appropriate arguments about whether the uh, network connectivity and things like that will be backed up. That's an appropriate critique, and I think something we need to manage.
1: I certainly have bought into this concept that you've proposed, and I can say at a very low level that I've gotten to experience some of the concepts that you're talking about within the subsurface community on the SSGN platform. For the naysayers, though, how does your article address concerns about reliability and maintenance as well as ethical use of weapons in conjunction with these LUSVs?
2: These are good questions, and I think the Navy is trying to answer them both for themselves and for congressional, congressional representatives, uh, both with land and sea-based testing that we're going back to and making significant investments in to show that these things can operate on their own for multiple days. Um, but with respect to ethical use of weapons, it's sort of an easy, hard answer, by which I mean, OPNAV n 96 the you know the leadership within our community that buys the ships, has said that these systems will rely on human in the loop. Uh, for decision making, um, whether that's someone on board or embedded within a network to make a decision. Um, with so that is in a sense, the easy part. We know how to do that. The hard part is that wartime targeting, uh, not having done it, but just based on my assumptions from exercises and, uh, gaming it out, the wartime targeting and ethical use is going to be hard regardless. And it's a great responsibility for anyone firing a weapon and their role within that kill chain to meet the ethical standards and the ROE accordingly. But that's the same methodologies that we've had since we employed the Fire and Forget Harpoon since the middle of the Cold War uh, that we're applying here. So ultimately, this is not uh, robo-killer death robots uh, trying to sink all the ships. This is deliberate human action in coordination and teamed with our unmanned partners.
1: You do such a great job of of laying out the hurdles that still need to be surmounted in order to make this idea come to fruition, but I'm going to keep digging in onto some of these other major barriers to every ship of SAG as a concept, and some of those involves fleet data collection, demand for talent, and munitions, so I'll have you cover some of those topics as well.
2: Sure. So I think there's been a lot of good work by folks like John Falcone and Jonathan Panter pointing out uh, cyber as a critical risk uh, for unmanned systems and force protection. And as well, they wrote a great piece on the unplanned costs of an unmanned fleet. Um, So I would offer those in two cases. One, there's the whole mechanical electrical maintenance infrastructure where, you know, where we've all dealt with ships that are in maintenance and trying to deal with that. Just throwing additional ships into the fleet without the maintenance facilities to support them, both people, process, procedures, tools, et cetera, uh, ultimately will not make us a successful program. Similarly, on the software side, if we don't have cybersecurity, the ability to integrate data, execute that in the same ways that the Navy and Department of Defense are making efforts towards artificial intelligence and digital transformation, those things are critical as well. Uh, But the two I really want to highlight specifically, are the talent and the munitions. And first, the talent. Um, I do recognize at present, whether it's Air Force drones or Navy uh, uncrewed systems, the data has not yet shown that when I go unmanned, I'm saving manpower dollar, dollars automatically. And I think there's been some concern with our current congressional representatives that this is a sneaky way to shrink the Navy and save money with uh, more lethal systems. And I would one disagree um, and really ultimately say we need these systems because we need the additional capacity at in the fleet, which will come initially with a manpower bill. However, I would offer until we get to the place where these systems are reliably used, that's not until the place where we'll be able to pull back on the manpower in the first place. So we'll never be able to get over the hump until we have deployed these in the first place, and so divest to invest is a dirty word, and I, I recognize manpower is an important piece of it. Munitions, too, though. I mean, the Fleet, Fleet Forces Commander, Admiral Caudle highlighted in Surface Navy Association this year that if he had 75 mission-ready ships, he wouldn't have their magazines all full right now. So SM-6, Tomahawk, these are critical uh, munitions programs that I know in at least the most recent budget proposal are being maxed out. It's great, and you love to see it. It's something that's a hard rock, but something we'll have to get to to make this effective.
1: The same conversation exists around torpedoes for subsurface platforms as well. It's not enough to just feel the platforms themselves without the capabilities to then make them lethal. You have to inject the lethality into them, right? You did highlight some of the great efforts by the Department of Defense. uh, And I had the pleasure of interviewing Captain Michael Brasser, who is the Commodore of Task Force 59, and Julie Angus in the 215th episode of Sea Control, which was only my second. Uh, but they are doing great work on creating a digital ocean. How does Every Ship of SAG integrate into and bolster their framework, as well as the work by PEO IWS in the Naval Postgraduate School?
2: Absolutely. So Captain Brosser just turned over with Captain Corden, uh, with Task Force 59. So I'd wish them both luck, uh, Captain Brosser and his retirement and Captain Corden in continuing the work that, uh, Task Force 59 and Admiral Cooper are doing out there in Fifth Fleet. There's really a lot of valuable stuff, testing and experimentation that they're doing. And the digital ocean that, uh, Captain Brosser talked about, uh, specifically in how they are deploying commercially available systems, uh, is really valuable, I think, in all of the missions of the Navy that we can often take for granted, uh, both as a country and within the Navy itself, it's some of the stuff, whether that's supporting migrants or monitoring data, environmental pieces, pieces that were highlighted. You can find online if you Google Digital Ocean. Um, I would offer that is in vain with the the missions uh, recently updated by Congressman Gallagher in the last NDAA, which acknowledged the peacetime missions of the Navy. Uh, in a presence role around the world and supporting the global order instituted in the post World War II timeframe, but there's also the war fighting mission that we don't want to get lost. And I wouldn't say it is, but uh, that we, I don't think we have told a compelling and convincing story about the role of USVs in a war fighting context, and specifically framed it in a specific enough way. So where that is abundantly clear to anyone who understands the basics of systems and operating concepts within the Navy. And so every ship of SAG for me is when we go to war, this is what we might need and in many ways what it might look like whether we have unmanned systems or not, uh, whether it's SAGs or strike groups operating in a distributed manner, able to strike or deny an adversary's uh, capabilities. In a digital ocean context, when the phase zero, phase one, where we want to have better data to understand anything that's happening from the seabed to space, absolutely want that and supports the peace missions of the Navy. Um, you mentioned EOIWS. Uh, They're doing a lot of great work with ship modernizations and specifically the integrated combat system. Things like this obviously will help mesh together the man-to-man teaming that whether it's digital ocean or other ship of SAG, I think is required. Similarly, the Naval Postgraduate School and the TICOM AI Task Forces, uh, work that needs to happen in innovation and research that, these, that we're investing in and trying to show that these things matter.
1: I'll give you one last shot across the bow, and it's because of a LinkedIn post that you just shared with us on Jerry Hendrix's article in The Atlantic this month. It's titled, Age of American Naval Dominance is Over. How does every ship as SAG contest this notion?
2: Well, I'll start to say that Admiral uh, Gilday has called us to get real and get better. And, uh, you know, I opened my piece with uh, hard math, hard math that I don't want to believe is true, but I think it's hard to argue with numbers and it's hard to argue with Congress's numbers. And ultimately, we have less ships. In the Navy, in the Coast Guard, in the Merchant Marine, less industrial capacity uh, than the Chinese. Uh, Jerry Hendricks, who's been an advocate uh, for increasing uh, the maritime power of the United States and getting back to our roots, going back to uh, the Revolution. These are things that we need to consider. So how would I say every ship of SAG fits in? I would say it is a recognition that current industrial base capacity does not support additional fleet growth with the same multi-billion dollar multi-mission combatants and building the combatants that are smaller uh, scope to particular use cases and can be fielded with scale in time of relevance uh, with sufficient capacity. Those are the things we need. And that is one small scope of the piece that Jerry Hendricks is speaking to. And I would encourage everyone to go read it because that's the sort of advocacy we need, uh, whether he's talking at home in Indiana or on the hill uh, because one small component of the surface Navy fits in with a wider, wider network of, from the merchant Marine to the Coast Guard, our Marine Corps, and across the fleet as a whole.
1: Kyle, you mentioned that Jerry is an advocate, but since our days on, you know, running around the Naval Academy together and me watching you tear it up on the football field, to now, where you have not only become an emerging voice for junior officers, but an established one with a pretty big accolade coming down the line here from proceedings. It has just been a pleasure to chat with you today. And while the time has run out, I just continue to feel good that the surface warfare community has a department head like you getting ready to forge out back into the fleet to lead, to think, to write and to make us a better collective force. So thank you again for your time today.
2: So much. And I would say to anyone who's interested in writing do it, Uh, you will start poorly, much like I did, and you will only get better by continuing to do it, just like we do anything. So uh, I look forward to getting back out to San Diego, whether it's for warm summers and California burritos and margaritas, and just hanging out uh, with my family and young kids out there. It'll be a great time. So thanks so much.
1: Doesn't get much better than that. We'll catch you next time on Sea Control.